Did you see the moon uh, this morning? Yes. It's incredible, isn't it? Sort of the sun on the east and the moon setting in the west and the large moon reflecting the light of the sun. So here are two uh, little haikus that people have left. One is about the moon. Eyes waken, moonlight bright as bright. Dark night illuminated, waiting, waiting, absolute stillness. Very appropriate for Holy Saturday. And then a little more verbally playful one. It crossed my mind, Jesus cross made me cross, but he did not mind. Thank you. Ah, I'm afraid I've left all my notes. Hmm. Okay, well, we have a, another session this afternoon. Um, I wanted to uh, copy for you a, uh, a homily from a second century author, which is uh, one of my favorite readings in the Office of Readings during the year. And it's uh, Jesus speaking on Holy Saturday, Jesus speaking to the people, to us. And uh, there's a very memorable phrase where after he's spoken about his descent into the netherworld, which is what Holy Saturday is about after the burial. Um, and he plunges deep into the layers of consciousness that, uh, from which we have arisen over the years, the sort of genetic uh, pool we're all part of. We live very much on the, on the crust of uh, evolutionary consciousness. Anyway, so the idea is that he descends into hell, he, he penetrates deep into the uh, layers of, of creation, and, um, and then he speaks to the reader, and he says, you and I now form one undivided person. You and I now form one undivided person. So a very powerful expression of what we can call Christian Advaita, non-duality. Advaita is the philosophy associated very much with, with, um, with, in, with India, of course, the non-dual consciousness. Advaita means not, not two, so it's not just one, but it's one, but not two. And, um, and of course, we, we, we find this example, this witness to the undivided consciousness uh, in, in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, where Jesus speaks about his Father, and the Father and I are one, which is not a very grammatical statement, because if you say, I am one with you, then I'm also saying there is you and there is me. So it's not one, not two. And it's, as we've seen throughout this week, getting at the heart of uh, Holy Week, getting into the meaning of the passion narrative, which we 
culminate tonight in the Easter Vigil, uh, that involves paradox. We have to allow ourselves to be comfortable with resting in this space that our minds, or some one part of our minds anyway, uh, rejects or thinks of as absurd or as contradictory. We simply have to live with paradox and let ourselves go through the paradox into reality. And that's really what I think our own lives uh, often teach us. When we find ourselves in a double bind or we find ourselves having to face an impossible decision, um, these are often precisely the moments where we are really ready to, to go deeper and to achieve or to be led into a, uh, a greater integrity or integration. Um, but at, at the time, it can seem uh, confusing and, uh, and disturbing. But this is, the, this is the way. Interestingly, quite recent research into the way the two halves or hemispheres of the brain uh, operate gives us an illustration of this. I don't think it's an answer to it, of course, but it illustrates it. And what we now know is that the two hemispheres of the brain uh, are involved in everything we do and think and are aware of. Um, we've always we've known for a long time that they, the two hemispheres are different, but we weren't able until more recent times with the imaging technology, we're now able to understand much more precisely how the brain works and what parts of the brain work and for certain functions. So over the last 20 or 30 years, this has built up. And um, Ian McGilchrist uh, wrote a, a wonderful study of this called The Master and His Emissary. Um, and in the first part of the book, he describes how uh, the two halves of the brain, hemispheres of the brain, are not in opposition to each other. They are involved and collaborate in all of our conscious, consciousness and unconsciousness. Um, but there is a world of difference between them. And the world of difference is the different kind of attention that we give. So he, the left hemisphere of the brain is very good at building a model of reality out of available data. And uh, we, we, we build this little model and we use it. Uh, so some of you who have, haven't been to the island before, after a week, you, you know your, at least know your way uh, from the hotel down here. So we build up a familiarity using a model that we remember. And this is very useful for all sorts of things, including scientific discovery and including just managing our lives. But where does the, where does the information come from that allows us to build that model? It comes from the right hemisphere of the brain. And whereas the left hemisphere specializes in fixity, in getting definitions and getting a map done and drawing up a, a blueprint and 
deciding who's going to do what. So organizational thinking, for example, and being consistent with the definitions or allocations we've made. Uh, it's very good at that. But the right hemisphere of the brain is in the flow of things. So fixity and flow, we need both. Just as St. Benedict um, has his monks uh, take the two of the vows, he, he has us take as well. One is uh, stability, which means to be rooted, and the other is conversion, which means uh, not just a one-off conversion, but actually conversatio morum, the continuous openness to change. And when the Dalai Lama once gave a, a talk on the, the rule of St. Benedict to a group of Benedictine nuns, he said it was this vow of conversion, of continuous change, of not being attached. We've been speaking about attachment during the week, not being attached or stuck, not getting stuck. Uh, this for him was, the, was a very Buddhist uh, principle. So just as we have these two principles of needing to be rooted and needing to grow, and that's what is surrounding us the whole time, and especially in the spring. This is what fills many of the parables of Jesus. When he speaks about the uh, kingdom of God, he often describes it as, um, as a process of growth. We'll come back to that in a moment. So, the two, the two hemispheres of the brain have very different kinds of attention, although they work together. The right hemisphere of the brain is the more contemplative one. It's more in tune and in touch with the actual flow of, of, of events, of reality. And um, it brings this information, sends it to the left hemisphere, which then processes it and files it, and then can send it back to the right hemisphere. This is all shown in the way the, uh, the brain works and the imaging uh, uh, process. And, um, and then that can be used. So it's not, it's not totally black and white because the, the right hemisphere of the brain, if there's, somebody has a stroke, for example, the right hemisphere of the brain can take on many of the functions that are not being performed by the left hemisphere but there is a world of difference between them. And if the balance is not kept, then we go into a dysfunctional state. We end up worshiping the model of reality that we have created. We sort of say, oh, I'd like to put you on this plane that you have arrived early for because there's no one on the plane, but the computer won't let me. You know? the model becomes the master. And we see in much of modern life how brilliant systems that we have constructed are dehumanizing us and making the human seem less human. So um, the right hemisphere of the brain, the more contemplative one, that's in touch with things as they really are, not as they were. If you build a model of something, you remember it. 
but it, you remember it as it was, maybe five minutes ago or maybe five years ago. And we become attached to those patterns and those models of reality. And very often, you know, we fight to the death to, to defend them, even when their use-by date is long over and we should, we should change, we should co continue the conversion process. Um, so it's the right hemisphere of the brain that is particularly comfortable with uncertainty. The left hemisphere of the brain doesn't like things to be uncertain and it, will, it wants to define and construct and control things. The right hemisphere of the brain says, well, yes, that's kind of useful up to a point, but that isn't really how, what life is like much of the time. And there are certain aspects of life where we simply have to let go of control and go with the flow. Be, away, be awake, as Jesus told, tells us many occasions, be awake, be aware, be mindful, um, but go with the flow. And this is very important, I think, when it comes to handling paradox. The right hemisphere of the brain is much more comfortable with uh, living with what seems like a, a contradiction. Come in. Okay. Did you get your yeah. scarf? Oh, it's good. I'm glad you found it. Um, so as much, it, it, the left hemisphere of the brain doesn't, doesn't like uh, paradox because it uh, isn't easy to define. Uh, and so it often rejects it and prefers one to the other and therefore gets things out of balance. Typical example of this is the story of Martha and Mary, two sisters living in the same house, one the symbol of contemplation, Mary, and the other the, the symbol of activity. So Martha becomes distracted by her many tasks and shows all the signs of stress and dysfunctional behavior that we're familiar with today. Um, Mary just stays there. We don't know what Mary's doing, but she stays there listening to, the, to Jesus speaking. And then Jesus uh, helps Martha, goes out to her to try to calm her and bring her back to herself. Um, but then he affirms Mary, who has been attacked by Martha. He affirms Mary, but Mary now not just as a psychological type, some people are more active and some are less active than others, but um, as a principle really, a fundamental principle that, which he describes in the words, Mary has chosen the better part, which is not a put down of Martha, but an affirmation that being comes before doing, which is pretty simple truth to accept. We can't do anything unless we are. And if the quality of our being is out of balance, is disturbed as it was for Martha, then clearly the way we do things is going to be unhappy dysfunctional, stressful, confused, and counterproductive in the end.
So the paradox is that we are contemplative and active, but the deep truth is that being comes before doing, and that's why we need meditation in our lives. And especially in modern life, where we have very little leisure, very little space, or certainly much less than in the past, and we occupy ourselves um, with, with activity, sometimes for its own sake, or sometimes we just call it entertainment or you know, wasting time, but it's kind of a busy wasting of time. Maybe having too many meetings. Many people in business complain that there are too many meetings and most of them are not uh, very useful. So in a world, in a culture where we have created this uh, imbalance, it's very important for us to be reminded of this basic wisdom that being comes before doing and therefore we have to make sure that we, that we remain in touch with this experience of being, with the flow of events. So we need time given in our lives to a contemplative practice. This is not just about thinking of these things, it's actually about doing the work that allows the balance to be restored and maintained. So, come back to that second century uh, Christian uh, teacher. You and I, he has Jesus say, form one undivided person. And if we want to open ourselves now, as, as we come to the end of Holy Week, to what Holy Week is about, which is the resurrection, then we need to just sit with this paradox. We, the uh, accounts of the resurrection appearances of Jesus in the Gospels were later additions. Um, First, the first Gospels, which was oral tra tradition and then were written down, the Gospel of Mark didn't have any uh, resurrection appearance in it uh, at first. It was put in later, probably for a later generation, because it was so obvious that it was all about the resurrection. There wouldn't have been uh, a Gospel. They wouldn't have been the seed of Christian community growing in those decades after his death, if there had not been this unique experience of, of the resurrection. Um, but it's a very difficult thing to write about or to talk about, precisely because it is so paradoxical that doesn't mean to say that it's not accessible and it can be experienced and we can reflect on the experience, but it's, very, it, it's not like ordinary uh, reality as we construct it. And we, the two hemispheres of the brain both specialize, as I said, in different kinds of attention. 
and each of them produce a different kind of world. Because the attention, the kind of attention we give in any one moment, in a, in a real way, constructs reality for us. That's what the world looks like and feels like to us because of the way we look at it. So you look at a, um, a problem and you see it just as a problem that has to be solved, then the world is a series of problems that demand your problem solving. If you look at the world, you look at a situation and you see um, what went before and what is happening now and what might be the consequences of it, you see it as a whole, you see a fuller context, then you begin to, there may be a problem to be solved, but it's not just about problem solving, it's also about seeing and appreciating the mystery and enjoying the mystery or being filled with wonder uh, at the mystery. So if we're, if we're going to understand the resurrection and why we have this vigil tonight and why we'll go to the standing stone early at sunrise tomorrow, uh, it's important for us to just be able to sit in the heart of this paradox. So Holy Saturday gives us the space and the leisure to do that. So the death has occurred, the body has been buried, and there's nothing else to do except to wait. And to wait, in a sense, even without knowing what we are waiting for. This is where some of those parables that Jesus spoke uh, about the kingdom are very helpful. For example, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed that a man planted and he went to bed at night. He got up in the morning, just got on with ordinary life. But all the time, the seed was growing in the ground how he did not know. That's a very right hemisphere statement. How he did not know, but it was happening. And at first there, was, there were no signs of this growth. And, but then, as in springtime, you suddenly notice the first little shoots or the first daffodils and you see this organic explosion of life happening uh, all around you and you realize it's been going on for a long time before it becomes visible. So it's the same with meditation. When we meditate, we're not um, looking for a visible, perceptible, measurable experience that will justify our meditation. So then you may say, well, what's the point in meditating if something doesn't happen? Well, something does happen through meditation. It actually happens very powerfully and deeply, and it doesn't take that long. If you're meditating uh, regularly, uh, you will see the, uh, the, the, the fruits or the benefits and the, the effects 
Um, or if you don't see them at first, uh, you can be pretty sure that the person you're living with will see it and will tell you that you should definitely keep meditating because you're easier to live with. Uh, and that usually means that you're, you're more attentive, that you, you pay attention to the people you're living with. And you listen and you respond and you can uh, hold off reacting or controlling people. So little signs quite quickly begin to show, little shoots begin to show that something is growing in you as a whole person. Not just in one part of you, but you as a whole person. How we do not know. So a lot of you know, scientific research has been done into the benefits, the fruits of meditation. And we make a distinction between the benefits which you can measure, like your blood pressure or your sleep pattern or your frequency of panic attacks or uh, your immune system. So these are things that can be measured even as we done recently here in Ireland, a research project with uh, medical uh, team at, in an emergency uh, room, in the emergency department of a big hospital. Um, a great reduction in burnout. So we can, these are benefits that we can identify and measure. And the left brain, of course, likes those things. So you can list them and you can give the, the metrics to show. And they're true up to a point. But what is the meaning of it? The experience is not enough. We need also to be able to make meaning of it as when the experience becomes strong enough, we have to face the question of meaning. So that's where we have this other concept of the fruits of meditation. So the fruits of meditation are not so easily measured. They're more like what St. Paul calls the fruits of the spirit. And they're actually uh, very similar to a list uh, of similar qualities uh, of the spiritual or the meditator uh, in the Dhammapada, the Buddhist text. And um, so these fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fidelity, gentleness, and self-control. Now, we can't measure those, but we can feel and, and we know the best proof is experience, we know that these qualities are, are developing in us. We may know it because somebody reflects it to us, but then we begin to be aware of it ourselves. You may find yourself, for example, feeling that suddenly being aware you've gone through a stressful moment or you, know, you got stuck in a traffic jam and missed an appointment or you lost something um, or you had a fight with somebody who was being very difficult and you suddenly notice that you went through that 
experience much more calmly, much more steadily than you would have thought you would have done. And you, you are aware of something changing, growing within you. Then the next time this happens, you may fly off the handle and um, you'll be made aware that you're still very human and with many faults of character. Nevertheless, you can feel that something is changing, conversion. And that's, that's why we keep meditating. And so really the, the, the benefits of meditation that we can look at and measure with the left brain are, are perfectly um, reasonable. But when you do look at them, they, with investigating their meaning and seeing how it is affecting the whole person that you are, these become fruits. So it's the same thing in a way. It's just when you measure them as benefits, they're kind of very um, um, material, or you subject them to a material analysis. But when you draw back a little bit and you see the big picture that they are part of, which is you changing, then you say, well, these are the fruits of the spirit and what on earth does that mean? And then it may begin to make experiential sense for you that this is the life of the spirit, the life of God growing in you divinizing you and then the resurrection begins to make more sense as well the resurrection then is no longer just an event that happened which we uh, which we are supposed to believe in but it becomes something more experiential the purpose or the the, the effect of the resurrection as we see in the New Testament accounts, and as we see through Christian history, where the resurrection is experienced in this paradoxical way, then it sends us back to this life and to live it in a different way. So the purpose of the resurrection is not only to say to us, you know, death is, uh, I don't have to worry about death. Uh, my death, because I know there's something after death, it can certainly do that. And along with meditation, I think uh, reflection on the meaning of the resurrection will reduce the fear of death, as we were saying the other, yesterday. But it's more than that. It's actually what is happening now. And it's in the in the inner life and the outer life, reflecting each other in each of us in a unique way. We each have an interiority, an interior life, and we all have relationships and work and social contexts or families to, in which we live externally. And when we see those, the inner and the outer, both showing an effect and we feel that we are becoming a little more whole that the inner and the outer which are paradoxes are actually 
forming a single unity, and we become therefore more peaceful. That's really what peace means. Everybody wants to find peace. And peace is not just the question of solving a problem or getting something out of the way. There'll always be something there to disturb our peace. But uh, peace is really this knowledge of our essential unity. And this also gives us a powerful uh, dynamic balance, balance of the inner and the outer, with which to deal with life, whatever life throws at us uh, unexpectedly. So, um, I'd just like to reflect a little, uh, and we'll do a little bit more this, this afternoon, on um, the theology, which is another way of saying the, the meaning of the resurrection. Holy Saturday is about this uh, descent of Christ into the netherworld, liberating what has been held uh, in bondage. Some of the icons of the Orthodox Church have these very powerful, beautiful icons, uh, images of uh, Jesus descending into hell, pulling Adam and Eve out and releasing everybody. Just just the, the big liberation, throwing open the doors of the prison, uh, releasing all this energy that's been pent up. So we can interpret that for ourselves in our own way. That the descent of Christ into our own netherworld is a liberation from the bondage of the past, from our guilt, from our shame, from our, what we have suffered, uh, at the hands of others or shame at what we have done ourselves. So there's a penetration deep into the earth the, where the seed is growing. And this, uh, this is a way, I think, for us to understand the universality of Christ and the universal influence of what happened on the cross what is happening now and what will happen uh, on Easter morning. Christ touches all humanity in some mysterious way. It's a basic principle of Christian thinking. This is not to be confused, as it often has been, with saying that everybody will or should become Christian. And there's a paradox, but uh, one that we, we, the contemplative consciousness, contemplative mind, is much better prepared to sit with and live with. The fundamentalist Christian or fundamentalist in any uh, faith or in any field of activity, even in science, you have fundamentalists. Um, 
you know, simply cannot sit with this and with paradox. And so they, they resolve it by coming down heavily on one side or the other. So the fundamentalist Christian would say, you cannot be saved, you cannot be liberated, you cannot be set free from um, sin um, unless you consciously and definitively uh, identify yourself with Christ and accept Christ as your savior. Well, the consequences of saying that are pretty horrific because it, it means that you have basically condemned uh, most of the world uh, to everlasting hellfire. And that's, you know, what some fundamentalists do. And so by proclaiming the universality of Christ in that way, in the fundamentalist way, they end up really making Christ a very kind of a cliquey uh, cult figure, not a universal healer at all. The early Christians understood Jesus not as a judge who's going to punish, but as a healer who is uh, restoring us and the world to health. The holy charmer of six souls, uh, Clement of Alexandria described him, the divine physician. So the model of healing rather than law uh, allows us to, to enter into that paradox. One theological um, compromise or attempt to balance it, which isn't so popular these days, but was, has, a, has a certain merit, is Karl Rahner's, the German Jesuit theologian's idea of the anonymous Christian or anonymous Christianity. So he would say, um, which is sometimes interpreted negatively by saying, you know, you, all of these non-Christians are really Christian, but they don't know it. Well, what I think we can say is that the, the descent of Jesus into the, all the layers of human nature and human history, where time and space and genetics and culture uh, have all formed and shaped us, that is that touches us all. It goes right to the core of human nature, of the human species, as part of the part of all creation. In the letter to the Romans, this is a text that sometimes is used to explain this um, idea of the, the anonymous uh, Christian. Uh, St. Paul says, I am under obligation to Greek and non-Greek, to learned and simple. Hence my eagerness to declare the gospel to you in Rome as well as to others. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the saving power of God for everyone who has faith the Jew first, but the Greek also, because here is revealed God's way of righting wrong, a way that starts from faith and ends in faith. 
That's Roman chapter 1. Now, everything depends there on how we understand faith. And as I was saying the other day, it helps to make a distinction between faith and belief. We may have different forms of belief, but faith is our capacity for commitment, for relationship, and for the transcendence of our ego. And therefore, faith will always lead us to love. May not begin with a romantic or even consoling experience of love, but it will always lead us to love if we remain faithful. And so here we have this understanding of faith as something universal and not dependent on culture or belief, or as we might say, even religious identity. But this, nevertheless, Christ in this passage becomes God's way of righting wrong, of putting things back. We might say balancing the left and right hemispheres, for example, where human life, human beings, all of us from day to day, uh, get out of balance. Keeping balance, health, equanimity is a continuous process. Every day throws something at us and can throw us off, off center. So what I think by reflecting on the uh, meaning of Holy Saturday can, in, can give us some ways of understanding the universality of Christ without having to impose Christian belief on everybody. So what difference does it make that we have a church or that we have a minority, a minority of people who do believe and who do feel who who do feel the personal relationship with Christ, which is our faith. It's really what faith means is do I have a personal, do I feel that personal connection? Even if I don't understand it, I don't know where that relationship is going to take me, but I feel the power of his resurrection in some ways uh, continuously in my life. A relationship that grows over time. Well, what's, what's, the, what's the meaning of having a group of people like that? Well, it seems to be very important but it's described by Jesus himself as a leaven or as salt rather than, you know, cornering all parts of the market and having huge takeover bids of other religions. So to understand this also, I think we need to understand that salvation is not just an individual matter. Even health, even physical or mental health, is something that depends upon uh, interrelationships. We can't be healthy just on our own. We, physically or psychologically, we need to, to feel and to function within a healthy system 
in order to be healthy. You need healthy air, healthy water, healthy food, healthy relationships. If we don't have that, we can't really say we're very healthy. So salvation, which is the healing of the human condition, salvation is not just an individual thing, but a universal thing. And we've seen that the passion narrative that we've been looking at during the week um, is about the human condition. Every small detail of the story illuminates one or more aspects of our own uh, experience of the passage, the passion of our lives. Julian of Norwich, a great 14th century English mystic, who was the first English, first woman to write a book in English, um, reflected upon her own interior experience, her own deep experience of what she called the revelations of divine love, and um, wrote this extraordinary, beautiful book, and which explores the, the meaning of this experience. She keeps on asking, what does it mean? What's it about? In the end, she concludes, the meaning is love. We are formed by love, we are sustained in love, and we are, we are heading for love. So, um, but she looks around the world, as we looked around the world yesterday, as we reflected on the cross, and how many crucifixions are taking place in the world, how many innocent people, the refugees or the political prisoners and the people in human trafficking, you know, how many crucifixions are taking place all around us. And so she, she looks at the world and, and she says, everywhere I looked, I could see sin. Just as the Buddha, slightly differently, but the Buddha looked at life and said he just saw suffering, old age, sickness and death. So, so Julian looks around the world, she sees all the signs of, suffer, of sin, but then she says, when I looked for sin itself, I couldn't find it. So I saw all, you might, we might say, we saw all the imbalance, all of the negative effects, but there, is, there was no, it wasn't that there was one enemy, you know, uh, causing all this sin. And so she, um, she says, well, you know, if, and she had a rev one of her revelations was that all will be well and all manner of things will be well. And then she says, but how on earth can everything be well with the world as it is? And I think there are maybe two ways in which she answers that. One is to look with the eyes of faith into, into the experience of love in your own life and not to lose 
your capacity to pay attention to the good in your life, however bad things may get or however depressing the world may be, that you keep your attention on the good on, and the source of love. <clears throat> That's what meditation helps us to do. And, um, and secondly, she says, in the end, sort of apocalyptic, eschatological idea, in the end, there will be a great deed. She calls it the great deed. Uh, an act of divine love that will reset everything. So that, that there is no, she says, how can we say that all will be well if there are people suffering in hell? Then all is not well. So the revelation must be wrong. Um, how can we enjoy heaven if there are, you know, countless people suffering in hell? So her, her way of dealing with this is basically to say that in a, in a way that certainly our left brain cannot understand, a great deed will, will be done, a great deed of love that will save all, that will heal everything and put everything right as St. Paul describes in that passage from Romans, God's way of righting wrong, just putting things back to where they should be. My plumber, I hope, as I speak, is putting my uh, water system in my house back to, back to right. We've identified the leak, now we've got to do the work. So, there will always be problems, but we, we, we have the responsibility of putting them right now, day by day. And what sustains us in that is this greater inclusive vision that at the end, let's say at the end of our lives, or at the end of time, uh, everything will be put right. And the resurrection fits into this. We can't understand the resurrection if we just isolate it. We have to see, first of all, that it was preceded by this plunging into the depth of human consciousness and of all levels of creation, that nothing is left untouched by this personal consciousness of Jesus. And then, as we begin to experience it for ourselves, and we'll look later at what it means to recognize, everything depends upon recognizing the risen Jesus in our lives. Um, Simone Weil says, he comes to us hidden, and salvation consists in our recognizing him. So, as we come to recognize him in daily life, we realize that we are living this life in a new way. Good, well let's take uh, a couple of minutes to uh, prepare for meditation.